Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. This episode is the third installment of recordings from my trip to Ukraine earlier this month. I'm talking with Franz Stefan Gotti, one of the premier military analysts in Europe, on a train ride to Kiev about the future of European security architecture and whether Europe can shake off its enormous dependency in the United States and build sovereign capabilities that would allow America to focus more of its efforts on the Indo-Pacific. I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's chat about European security. The U.S. has been trying to pivot to the Indo-Pacific since the days of the Obama administration in 2011, always very unsuccessfully because other priorities keep pulling us back. One of them, of course, being the Middle East for the last decade, but now the war in Ukraine. But you are seeing now a shift in European security architectures and, and rethinking of their positions on military procurement. Most prominent of it has been Germany's position about the need to build the most capable military in Europe to be a pillar of European security and at least announcing the spending of about 100 billion euros to reform the European military. How do you assess the efforts so far, where they're going? Is the strategy right? Is it actually being implemented? How do you see the European security evolving? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation and uh, sitting here enjoying a nice cup of uh, Ukrainian black tea while we are talking. Um, I believe that, first of all, we're moving in the right direction when it comes to realizing that a new security architecture in Europe has actually um, emerged after February 24th, 2022. And there is a realization, particularly in countries like Germany, that military power is back on the scene. However, it's a hard and very long way that we still need to go in order to make it a reality, that is that you know military uh, means are actually seen once again as legi- legitimate tools to advance German or European um, overall interests. And I think that's where we are at the moment. We've seen a couple of interesting efforts uh, by the German governments to essentially engage with the German defense industry. Um, you have issues like in any other countries pertaining to red tape, uh, the financial situation, you mentioned already 100 billion, 100 billion uh, euros is not going to be enough to really address the capability and capacity deficits in the German Bundeswehr. And is, it, is that 100 billion actually being spent? There have been a lot of articles written about the announcement of 100 billion, but whether it's actually been allocated or not is a big question. Uh, yeah, so most of that money actually, as you rightly um, um, just said, has not been spent just yet. There are major procurement issues within uh, the German military bureaucracy. Um, there are a couple of uh, institutions where the saying goes, this is where defense projects usually go to die. Uh, there's one instance, for example, where um, German helicopter pilots have been waiting for a decade to receive new helmets. Um, they have major issues procuring a new assault rifle for their forces. Uh, there are lots and lots of examples where um, things are not really going according to plan. But I think this is, I would not say normal, but this is something that a lot of other countries have to deal with, uh, 
if you look at the United States and the broken uh, acquisition process there, for example, the major issue in Germany is what I said initially, it's really this discomfort with the concept of military power and the use of military power for good in international relations. I think that's a major, major problem. When we look into the future of warfare over the next 10 to 20 years, this will have major implications for the future German force structure, particularly when it comes to um, becoming more uh, familiar or at least um, more comfortable with the idea of autonomous weapon systems, loitering munitions, uh, human-machine teaming and so forth, um, all these concepts that have been going around in the United States, for example, when it comes to future warfighting, uh, that's a debate that's not really happening in Germany right now, where you often can, you know, there's a confusion, for example, be between remotely piloted um, uh, drones and loitering munitions or more semi-autonomous or autonomous weapon systems. And I think Germany, if it wants to become really the leading military power again in Europe, has to become more comfortable with autonomy on the future battlefield. And I think that's something that I really see missing in the debate. Having said that, um, the German defense industry would have the potential to actually um, serve most of the German Bundeswehr's uh, uh, capability requirements. It, it, it is one of the best military defense industries, right? I mean, one of the largest. But but also, they're, they're, some of their weapon systems are some of the best in the world. The Leopard tanks, the Iris T uh, air defense systems, their diesel submarines are considered some of the best in the world. They have a lot of capabilities to invent cutting edge weapons platforms. Th that is true. Um, I think the first thing to understand, uh, uh, one needs to understand about the German defense industry is that by and large, they are a component supplier. So you see a lot of uh, German, um, uh, you know, uh, components in a lot of weapon systems um, across the world, across the West. Um, but they also have very excellent uh, platforms. Uh, you mentioned um, a couple, of, particularly when it comes to ground vehicles, and you mentioned um, some of them, you know, armored vehicles and and so forth, main battle tanks. They're working on a new, new, new armored vehicles. They are working on. Uh, next generation battle tanks with a couple of other European partners. Um, the main uh, ground combat system, for example, is, 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 is going to be um, a family a family of uh, systems um, where you're going to have like manned platforms paired with unmanned platforms. But I think it's a good case in point of what I was trying to say um, or, you know, earlier about this, this, this uh, reluctance to engage with this concept of autonomy and what it means in, in military affairs that is, um, when you look at, for example, this new main uh, ground uh, uh, combat system that is the next generation main battle tank for the French army, the German Bundeswehr, um, if Germany is not willing to engage with autonomous platforms or lethal autonomous platforms, for example, then this concept of having a manned main battle tank that is sort of, for example, a command center uh, from where you direct a number of autonomous uh, ground vehicles that can actually do you know, some of the more dangerous missions on the battlefields, whether it's mine clearing, whether it's actually direct fire support, indirect fire support, and so forth. Um, you're probably going to develop these systems, and, and they are probably not 
will not be used to the full technical potential, for example. And I think this is also where you probably will have uh, you know cultural disagreements with countries such as France or the United Kingdom, where um, um, these concepts are more advanced, where people are more openly uh, willing to uh, engage or at least um, um, you know be willing to integrate um, autonomous platforms um, into their um, force structure, into their warfighting concepts and so forth. Of course, this is just one example of um, this larger AI-enabled evolution in military affairs. I particularly don't refer to it as a revolution in military affairs because I don't think that's going to be likely. Um, it's going to be you know, an evolutionary introduction of, of AI-enabled capabilities in Western militaries. And I think here Germany could actually lose its, its cutting cutting edge or like it's 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 standing as one of the world's um, finest uh, defense suppliers because they have a lot to catch up on when it comes to um, AI and AI capabilities in warfighting so um, I think we're as I said moving in a good direction but it's by far not enough and um, we need to be a lot faster, not just with um, capability requirements, also just capacity um, is going to be a problem, capacity particularly when it comes to munition productions and so forth. And here the problem is that the German government, for example, has not really signed a lot of multi-year contracts with um, weapon suppliers, ammunition suppliers, like for example um, German uh, defense contractor Rheinmetall. They have capacity to produce a couple of hundred thousand heavy artillery shells a year. But um, this is really just a nominal capacity. The German government has not really signed long-term contracts with Rheinmetall to really expand capacity. And what they expect is a lot of pre-financing. So they expect German defense contractors to pre-finance um, expansion of additional production lines and so forth. And this is obviously not something that uh, German defense companies are really willing to do. So you have a capability problem in the long term. You still have a capacity problem in the German defense industry. And this is just really one country, one example. And you can you really have these issues across the board, perhaps minus the whole cultural aspect that I was talking about regarding military power, autonomy and so forth. That it's That is really quite unique to Germany. Of course, we have the same issues in the U.S. where long-term contracts are hard to come by. As a result, defense industry is not investing in capacity, whether it's in naval capacity, shipyards, or ammunition production, and so forth. Let me ask you about the evolving nature of NATO. You obviously have Sweden now on the verge of joining. You know, hopefully, Turkey will acquiesce and, and provide the final approval. But they are a huge manufacturer of arms variety of weapon systems and along with Finland are a highly, highly capable military, well-trained military. How do you see the integration of Finland and hopefully Sweden soon into NATO changing the European defense force structure? I think when it comes to the land component of NATO, this is obviously going to massively increase uh, combat, combat capabilities for NATO overall. Um, it's fundamentally changing the strategic picture for Russia as well, right, um, in the Baltics. My question is, can this really be sustainable with current defense budgets, right? Um, because what we're really seeing overall is a willingness by European countries to uh, at least commit to increasing their defense budgets. But as I just said about Germany, 
you automatically hit a couple of um, practical limitations when it comes to expanding your military um, capacity and uh, capability over the next couple of years because um, we are just in Europe not ready for um, a full-scale high-intensity conflict just in terms of our production capabilities um, again just like in terms in, of volume right for it, it lasting well it's it's volume also but it's also that we haven't investment invested in, in crucial technologies over the last couple of decades where we became reliant on the United States and I'm not saying that this is a particularly bad thing but the idea that we really can as you know Macron you know likes to talk about um, this idea of um, European autonomy or European uh, Self-reliance. You know, sovereignty and stuff uh, when it comes to defense issues. I just don't see that happening anytime soon. We will continue to need to rely on the United States as a security uh, provider. And I don't think um, Finland and Sweden joining NATO is going to change that. I think it actually will, um, as a matter of fact, increase the demand for uh, U.S. um, help in this matter just because the United States when it comes to uh, the European security architecture, it doesn't just provide hard military power and capability, they also act as a political force integrator in a way. And I think it's more needed than ever at this stage. The United States is what keeps this European defense architecture uh, glued together, I always compare it to the glue that is holding all of this uh, together. because. The truth is that there are a lot of, uh, you know, interest, uh, you know, divergent interests among a lot of the European countries when it comes to uh, defense issues, and I think the United States is the one that can act as the primus inter pares on occasion, and then also um, make European countries prioritize their defense, um, um, you know, uh, you know, agendas. So, I think. Finland and Sweden joining NATO makes it more important for the United States to stay committed to European uh, defense in the long run rather than the other way around. At least that's that's how I see it. But it's one thing to have U.S. continue to provide a leadership role in NATO, herd the cats, try to integrate different capabilities in a coherent fashion, provide intelligence, resources, surveillance, reconnaissance, etc., airlift capacity, and so forth. And it's another thing to have significant U.S. forces continue to be stationed in Europe and adding on to it with permanent deployments in the Baltics and other places and stationing equipment that we may need in the Indo-Pacific. So I guess the question that often comes up in D.C. discussions, particularly from the China hawk crowd that is very concerned about the looming uh, potential of a battle with China is... At what point can we rely on the Europeans to take care of their own problems here in Europe with us still being involved, not not disappearing entirely, not hopefully withdrawing from NATO, but nevertheless not having significant forces and weapon systems, American weapon systems being deployed in Europe? Well, I mean, the main issue here is really enabling capabilities, right? Because obviously... Uh, you can have a formidable U.S. Army presence in Europe and still pivot with most of your military forces to East Asia in the event of um, a conflict potentially emerging there. The major issue I see from a pure military perspective is uh, critical enablers that, that are in really short supply, even in the United States military, the most powerful military 
in the world and I think over the next couple of years, the next decade, unless European militaries are making some crucial investments in, for example, um, air refueling capabilities, um, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capabilities, um, battle management systems, additional next generation fighter jets, you know, fifth generation fighter jets and so forth. Um, Lots of lots of other lots of other um, things that you know you would need to do to deter perhaps renewed aggression um, from from uh, you know the east. I think uh, the United States will need to retain um, a sizable amount of enablers in Europe to just make European militaries work without those um, enablers and um, you know, additional capabilities that Europe lacks. I think it's going to be extremely difficult to really maintain a credible deterrence posture vis-a-vis -vis potential future adversaries such as Russia, for example, but even other countries. So to me, um, I don't think there can be an immediate shift. And I think Europeans don't realize what it really means should the United States engage in the war in East Asia in Taiwan. Because if this war is going to break out and if there is not going to be a decision in the first couple of days or weeks, then you end up uh, having a war of attrition in East Asia where um, you're going to be slowly grinding down each other's uh, military capabilities. And here, even the United States is not very well positioned because the United U.S. defense industry also currently, as it is structured, cannot really sustain a high-intensity military conflict over a prolonged amount of time so eventually you would need to move those enabling capabilities in Europe to um, East Asia in the event that this war there goes on and I think that's going to be a major problem because once you cut some of these enablers in uh, Europe I think military European military capability and capacity uh, to conduct certain operations um, are going to be massively curtailed and this of course will have immediate implications for deterrence so um, I'm not trying to come up with dark scenarios here but I could see that somebody could take advantage of that if the United States is engaged um, in a prolonged conflict with China um, that certain actors could potentially take advantage of that in Europe because they will find out that the Emperor really has no clothes that is, you know, European militaries over-reliant on the United States to provide enabling capabilities um, might not be able to do much in the event of, a, of a, you know, renewed aggression in Eastern Europe. So, most conversations about European defense force structure is often centered around the big three countries, Germany, France, and the UK, even though UK is no longer part of the EU, still a critical component of NATO. And obviously these countries are huge countries with massive financial resources, but Europe is big and you have other countries like Poland, for example, with huge populations. And you've seen them starting to also rethink their security structures after the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine. And you're seeing Poland invest massive amounts of money right now in procurement, for example, of Patriot defense missiles from the United States. You're seeing other procurements of F-35s across Eastern Europe. What do you make of the collective ability of other states in Eastern Europe, maybe in Southern Europe, you know, Spain, Italy, and others, to compensate for 
where Germany and France perhaps are not moving sufficiently fast or in, in the right direction? Well, you know, military power is not just um, a function of how many platforms you have and what kind of artillery, artillery power, uh, you know, ground-based fires and so forth you can really uh, put into the field in the event of conflicts. Uh, as I said, the key issue to me is not so much um, lack of firepower or um, lack of um, individual fighting platforms, although there is obviously, as I pointed out, a capability gap. For example, when it comes to next generation combat aircraft, long-range air defense systems and so forth, to me it's really um, um, the enablers that are missing and that really, really, really will require at least half a decade, a decade to, to, to build up. But even there, the reliance on the United States is so strong that I don't really see that much movement to procure, for example, you know, additional transportation uh, capacity at a scale that is really going to be needed for future conflict with, for example, Russia. The same goes with um, long-range air defense systems, uh, medium-range air defense systems, and then also um, the uh, you know the integration components that are that 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 are needed. That is, um, ISR capabilities that Europe can't really do um, on their own without U.S. support. I think. Generally speaking, the issue here is political will, but it's also capacity, uh, a capacity issue as I pointed out, but I think political will is also a function of um, threat perceptions, right? And here you have a huge uh, divergence in European countries that makes me not optimistic that we are really understanding that there has been a, a fundamental shift um, after February 24th, 2022. And I always point out February February 24th, uh, 2022 uh, is not really the illness that we are trying to cure here. I think it's um, a symptom of a larger illness that has been going on for many, many years before. Um, and I'm not even talking about 2014 with Russia invading uh, Ukraine for the first time. I think there's been a fundamental power shift over the last couple of decades that sort of brings military power back on the table after this unipolar moment in the 1990s with the United States dominating um, all aspects of, of, of international relations, so to speak. Um, and I think um, the problem here is that you still have countries such as France and Germany, some of the major military powers, that are not fundamentally, or they at least feel not threatened by countries such as Russia to a degree that it really demands a sense of urgency. Well, they're far away, right? They're so, far away. So they know that if Russia is invading, there's Poland to get through. There's, you know, no, the, the Baltics, yeah. uh, there are other countries. And I think that's, I think, an issue. Then again, you have a country like the United Kingdom, which is um, deeply concerned about the rise of Russian military power. But even there, um, there is a lot of rhetoric about uh, increasing defense budgets and new procurements and stuff. And the reality is that the UK defense budget um, has not substantially uh, led to additional military uh, you know, uh, capabilities uh, being, being uh, procured just because there are financial reasons for that, right? And, but uh, financial budget, uh, you know, defense budgets are not rising to a degree that, that you can really embark on a massive uh, buying spree, right? The same goes for Germany. The hundred billion uh, that, that are often talked about, I mean, that amount already has been essentially all um, assigned to capabilities that should have been procured already two decades ago or so. So it's not substantially going to increase 
um, capability. And I think the most important aspect, what we, are t you know, what is usually missed when we talk about military power in Europe, but not just in Europe in general, is the human dimension, right? It's going to be extremely difficult to get people to enlist in those militaries in Europe just as it is in the United States, but I think the problem in Europe is much, much bigger for societal reasons and, you know, how the labor markets are structured. A and aging stuff. populations. Aging population on top, but it's, it's fundamentally, you know, how do you attract like a 17, 18 year old um, to join the military? I think, you know, most of the European armed forces at this stage are um, volunteer forces. And that is a major, major issue. Even like with some of the remaining militaries where conscription is in place, you have massive, uh, you know, you have massive shortages of skilled, uh, skilled uh, laborers. But hold on a second. You're not, a you're not advocating for conscription militaries. Oh, right? I'm not. I'm absolutely not advocating for conscription. I've, I don't think that's really going to be tenable politically. It's also not uh, something that I foresee to be like a great, you know. A, big component of any future future war, although um, the major issue and what we're seeing now here in Ukraine, uh, we're driving through the countryside here, um, uh, riding through the countryside here on, the, on this train, um, is that what you need in a modern force structure is the ability to really reconstitute military power fairly quickly after a couple of days or weeks of heavy fighting. So you need a large reserve component whether that res uh, large reserve component is um, uh, manned or filled with uh, conscripts or with um, reservists who voluntarily signed up, doesn't really matter. But you do need to incentivize uh, people to join the military. Otherwise, um, you're spent force after a couple of days of heavy, heavy fighting. So um, I'm not for conscription. I think it's not something that is really going to solve any of the immediate problems. But brings me back to my initial comment about, for example, Germany and Germany's relation uh, to military power and um, lethal autonomous systems. Uh, one obvious solution over the next 10 to 20 years would be increased human machine teaming to act as a force multiplier on the battlefield. I know the technology is not there just yet, but um, you could potentially come up with new operational concepts, military doctrine in the future, force structure and so forth, where you can actually, with less people, achieve higher effects on the battle space by just um, fielding a lot more autonomous platforms, unmanned, uh, uncrewed platforms, uh, whatnot. And I think this is something where Europe as a whole is lagging behind other countries such as the United States but also potential future um, adversaries such as Russia or um, competitors such as China. At least um, that's, I think, something that needs to be pointed out here. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time thinking about future warfare, future design weapon systems. Let me ask you a more strategic question. Weapon systems get more and more complex and more and more expensive over time as a general rule. And as a result, if the budgets can't keep up with that level of expense, you tend to procure less and less of that, right? So, for example, as militaries are migrating from the F-16s to the F-35s, it's not a one-to-one -one typically transition because the F-35 costs a lot more. And the key question is, are we getting enough return on investment for that additional expense? Yes, the F-35 is a highly capable jet, much more capable than the F-16, but 
given that you can't procure it in as many numbers, is that additional qualitative advantage compensated enough for the decrease in quantity? And, and not just about the F-35, but really all these weapon systems. Should we be rethinking this move towards more and more complex systems that, by the way, require a lot more training, a lot more time from the professional militaries and would potentially be a problem with the reserve force or uh, certainly conscripts to operate? And should we be thinking more volume of cheaper, simpler systems, particularly if future wars might be attritional wars? Well, the likelihood that any future great power war is going to be dominated by attrition is probably very, very, very high. So I do think we need to take that into account in any of our discussions pertaining to future force structure. To answer your question, I think what we need is a hybrid force structure, where we have a lot of um, so-called attritable platforms paired with more exquisite or um, more multi-purpose platforms such as the F-35 that you mentioned. And this is really where operational concepts are coming in, where we need to be innovative. Um, how do we integrate these different uh, capabilities? And I don't think it's an either-or answer. I think it's going to be both. At the one point, any sort of um, quantity is going to become quality of its own, right? So I think um, the question is, what is really the tipping point where we have a certain amount of multi-purpose platforms that are, um, you know, where we cannot really afford to lose a lot of them, and that then in turn is going to massively reduce our, um, you know, combat potential in any future conflict vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, what can we really achieve with um, some of those more attributable platforms without actually those, um, you know, larger multi-purpose platforms acting as, as, as you know, uh, an, an enabler, so to speak. And um, I think the question is, at the end of the day, and it, you know, how do you effectively integrate a tritable with um, more, um, you know, multi-purpose platforms? Um, that, to me, seems to be the key uh, to unlocking future military power. And do you see anyone, whether it's the United States or Europe, thinking about it that way? Yes, I think there is a big effort in the United States now, and I think they're, again, leading the charge, at least in the West and NATO, uh, thinking through these issues and really thinking about human-machine teaming, um, integrating um, <clears throat> attributable platforms with um, multi-purpose platforms, that is, you know, unmanned uh, drones with um, more, um, you know, uh, next-generation combat capabilities such as the F-35 and so forth. But but even, let me just push yeah. back, because even these unmanned drones are incredibly expensive compared to, relatively, compared to, you know, the drones that the Ukrainians are using, these FPV drones that they built for $1,000, $2,000. There's no equivalent of that in the United States. Everything is uh, counted in the millions, if not tens of millions. So are we thinking about it in the right way in terms of we need tens of thousands of these things because we're going to be losing them by the hundreds every single week, if not at an even higher rate. And if each one costs millions of dollars, that's not sustainable. So there are a couple of projects that are already underway where they're specifically trying to address this, this issue. Uh, and um, there are also some very innovative uh, approaches that I've, I've, I've seen last time I was in D.C. I talked to folks about this, um, where you 
actually just yeah rely on commercial off-the-shelf products for certain um, operations particularly when it comes to you know ground uh, ground operations where you can effectively integrate or create new kill chains that is linking sensors and shooters with commercial off-the-shelf products where you don't really care about losing a couple of dozens a day or whatever you know when it comes to these drones that are acting as um, you know ISR platforms essentially for your artillery batteries and so forth or uh, you know other other uh, ground-based fires and do you think we're going to be visiting and talking to lots of people here this week in Ukraine about how they're integrating and, and building those capabilities. Do you think that there's a lot we could learn from the Ukrainians on this front? I'm sure there are certain lessons that we can learn from the Ukrainians. At the same time, um, we can also learn some of you know the more negative lessons that the Ukrainians had to learn the hard way from fueling a lot of commercial off-the-shelf products just in terms of scalability, um, you know, bottom-up approach uh, of innovation is always obviously a good thing in the business industry, but it reaches its natural limits when it comes to military force structure where um, you have a problem of interoperability at a certain stage. If you, as a brigade or as a battalion, try to come up with a new way of managing the battlefield, but your unit next to you is actually not capable of receiving that data and so forth. So I think, you know, there are a couple of good lessons to be learned here, but I would be extremely cautious in extrapolating too many lessons and try to apply them one-on-one uh, -on -one to uh, Western militaries here. Well, Franz Stefan Gotti, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.